HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Well, here's one for you. Libyan Jewish cuisine in Rome. Yes, indeed. And we're going to talk all about it with Katie Parla today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on this half-hour journey, or, well, as long as we, maybe 40-minute journey through culinary history. And it may seem rather oxymoronic to think about Libyan Jewish cuisine, particularly in Rome, considering in Libya today there are no Jewish uh, residents. And Indeed, you know, when any group of people travels or emigrates to another land, it what do they bring with them that makes them feel at home? And of course, it's always the food. And indeed, there is a cuisine, even though it's been a long time, there is a cuisine of the Libyan Jewish community that existed years ago. And um, that cuisine is most prevalent today in Rome, in the Jewish ghetto. And today to talk with us about it is Katie Parla. And Katie is a Rome-based food and beverage expert. She writes a terrific blog called Parla Food, which means in Italian, talk food. And uh, she just is really an an expert on all things Roman, uh, all things Italian. She runs tours through not only Rome, but Istanbul and other parts of Italy, and has a couple of really terrific apps for traveling in Italy. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And she has a book coming out in the spring called Tasting Rome, Fresh Flavors and Forgotten Recipes from an Ancient City. Katie, welcome. Thanks so much for having me back, Linda. It's it's just always great to see you and talk about Rome, of course. But today we're not talking, well, we are talking about Rome, but from another perspective. Libyan Jewish cuisine. 
Whew. All right. First of all, you love exploring all these ancient cities and writing about ancient foods and 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 also you know the history. Tell me a little bit about your background and how this came to be. So I um, studied Latin in high school, was always super, super into classics and the Roman Empire. And so when I first started traveling at age 16, Italy was my first destination. Um, and I decided at that time I would move to Rome and live there forever. Um, and I love Rome. I think it's a profoundly interesting place. But my interests have spread beyond Roman borders to other parts of the former Roman Empire. You know, it's a great big world out there, but I like to sort of confine, <laughs> right. confine my Roman borders. Empire was like, not. <laughs> that you're talking pretty one. large. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was three continents, you know, 60 right. million subjects, a pretty vast area. Right. Um, but, uh, but the communities... Um, and how they've progressed through the past 2,000 years from Roman antiquity to the present day. These various majority or minority communities have always really, really interested me. So Rome might be my base, but my interests are um, even beyond Roman borders. That's terrific. Well, for people who are not familiar with Rome and haven't had the opportunity yet to travel to Rome, it has a very interesting Jewish ghetto, in fact, the oldest Jewish quarter of any Western European country. And um, it's uh, it's beautiful in its cavernous uh, feel to the streets, and and you go through the the old port, the Portico d'Atavia, and and it's just it captures you can you can feel the history when you go there, and of course a lot of people who are familiar with Rome and um, and like to explore all the different neighborhoods are familiar with the Jewish ghetto in terms of the wonderful restaurants and the cuisine that's offered there. Of course, everyone by now is familiar with the Karchofi Judea and the the fried artichokes. But you now are are writing about cuisine that goes a step beyond a very specific Jewish cuisine, Libyan cuisine. Give us a little background on on the whole Libyan Jewish community? Um, So the Libyan Jewish community arrived in Rome in 1967. Um, People were um, evacuated from mainly Tripoli and Benghazi. Um, This was after the Six-Day War. There were widespread protests um, uh, against the Libyan community that had been in these Libyan cities for over 2,000 years at that point. So thousands of people were evacuated by, among other entities, um, Alitalia, um, the Italian Navy, even a, a popular um, ferry uh, company. Well, and, and just to back up, Libya was ha- had been an Italian um, an Italian colony, of course, yeah, back since nineteen eleven. Nineteen eleven, right? Exactly. Yeah. So Italy and. Italy and Libya have been bonded, not just since the Roman Empire, but even more in contemporary times, since the colonization of uh, of Libya in 1911. Um, And then, of course, as the monarchy um, gave way to the fascist dictatorship, um, the Jews of Libya were subjected to the same laws that Italian Jews were subjected to, the laws for the defense of race, which were passed by the Italian fascist government in 1938. Um, And so in you know, in this uh, in this period in which um, Italian Jews and Libyan Jews are being persecuted, some are being deported, others are being um, obliged to uh, to work in slave labor camps. You have this um, undeniable bond between the communities that will be enriched in 1967 when Jews are evacuated from Libya and brought to Rome. There are no um, precise documents, but we estimate between five and 6,000 mm-hmm. Jews were evacuated to Rome. Um, some were welcomed into the homes of Roman Jews, 
particularly in the Piazza Bologna district, um, if you're familiar with Rome's metro system, if you hop on the Metro B um, and get out at at Bologna, one of the first things that you will encounter are some kosher restaurants near the metro stop. um, And other members of the the Libyan Jewish community were settled in refugee camps in Latina, the southern part of of Lazio. Uh, Many eventually then did go to Israel, um, but other stayed. And now Rome's 13,000-member Jewish community, which is incredibly diverse considering its small size, is composed of a significant number of Libyan Jews. About 4,000 of those 13,000 people mm. are of Libyan descent. And considering there, as I said you know, at the top of the show, considering there are no Jews left in Libya at all, that's, that's considerable. Absolutely. Uh, and it wasn't the first forced um, migration of the Jews. I mean, that had been going on for millennia. Uh, and certainly then, you know, prior to that, centuries. So it's been a long, a long haul, as I say, for them. Now, I, a lot of the dishes that I have read in your research that you've talked about and the research that I've done, um, I have to say uh, many of them I'm not, not at all familiar with and, and did not, was not aware of. But um, some of them, of course, I am very familiar with, and of course, one of them being shakshuka, which is everywhere, dappertutto, as they say in Italian. <laughs> it is sort of the dish of, of the moment. Um, and that, But that is just a, the tip of the iceberg of some of these very different dishes. But I did notice that there was a, a very similar um, a similarity in these dishes to North African cuisine. For sure. Yeah, I mean, the, the Libyan Jewish community before... Um, before being, being evacuated, had been part of uh, the Libyan territory for over 2,000 years. So it's only natural that as ingredients and spices fled into North Africa from the New World and other parts, that the Libyan Jewish community, which was a significant part of, of Libya, would absorb similar flavors, similar ingredients. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're absolutely right, shakshuka is a feature of the Roman, uh, of rather the, the Libyan Jewish uh, cuisine. But I think the the most iconic dish is called harami, which is um, a spicy um, paprika and cayenne pepper enriched tomato stew um, in which fish is cooked. It's a typical Shabbat dish, and it's served with couscous. And a lot of the vegetal or the meat stews that we encounter in the Libyan uh, Jewish tradition are these really um, spice and herb enriched stews, caraway, um, cumin, paprika, especially garlic. These ingredients are present in many, many, many of these dishes. Mm. And then they're enriched with other elements, sometimes nutmeg, sometimes allspice. Um, meat and vegetables uh, tend to be a particular feature as well, although meat is used sparsely. Vegetables are used incredibly liberally. Well, the fish dish also kind of shows its, shows the background of the Italian influence uh, greatly too. I mean, obviously, when once tomatoes traveled back in the in the fifteenth, late fifteenth century, sixteenth century, Absolutely. I mean, they all they all started using tomatoes. But the um, the couscous, is a, which is pasta, mm-hmm. you know, it's mm-hmm. it, there are a lot of these these um, uh, Italian. Italian sure. and Middle East, so they're all sort sure. of combined, the flavors and combined. Of course, and in, you know, in 1911, when the colonization period in, in Libya begins on the part of the Italians, of course new foods were introduced, and of course Italian settlers were introduced to these areas, bringing their own traditions. Couscous predates the arrival of these Italians, of course, but um, but it's only natural that uh, the colonizing population would have had some influence on uh, on the cuisine of, of people in Libya, Jewish and otherwise. Right, absolutely. Uh now, are these, if, if one were to travel to Rome, 
Are these foods found in any restaurants in the Jewish quarter? The Libyan Jewish cuisine is overwhelmingly located in at-home tables, by and, far, by and large. However, um, if you walk down the main street in the Jewish ghetto, it's called Via Portiga di Ottavia. And when I say Jewish ghetto today, I'm indicating a an area that's much larger than the historical ghetto. The historical ghetto corresponds to only about four city blocks today. But now when we walk through the, the environs, we also call that area the Jewish ghetto. Right. It is, in fact, um, uh, actually, it's quite a clever marketing phrase because it's a, it's considered a very up, uh, upscale neighborhood. When people are trying to sell real estate, they'll mention that their home is in the ghetto, even if it's just on the edge. Um, it gives more value to the property. The The irony is, uh, is intense in this right. case. The... Um, the main street via Porto di Ottavia is packed with restaurants, um, restaurants that have tablecloths, restaurants that serve fast food. There's even now a, um, a kosher sushi place. Um, it's a chain. I wouldn't recommend it. But anyway, the, uh, the, there are a few restaurants that, uh, that focus on um, North African cuisine. Um, one is called Baguetto. The other is called Baguetto Milky. And as the name might uh, imply, Baguetto Milky is a dairy, dairy. kosher place. <laughs> um, Baguetto uh, is a meat uh, restaurant. They're owned by two brothers who were born in Israel to Libyan Jewish parents, but then moved to Rome um, and opened a number of restaurants, not just in the ghetto, but also in the Piazza Bologna district. Their names are Meat uh, and Ilan Dabouche. And coexisting beside the classic Roman Jewish deep fried artichoke or concha, which is sort of a, a fried zucchini marinated in garlic and, uh, and vinegar and oil, which are typical features of the local Roman Jewish cuisine. You also have haidami with couscous. You've got all sorts of vegetal stews um, served with couscous as well. Um, occasionally mafroom, um, which is a, a sort of meat-filled vegetable that's then um, floured and fried. Um, and uh, a number of Israeli dishes as well. So the the Dabush brothers, I think, in a very um, tangible way, have sort of collected and coalesced their various culinary influences and then integrated into the city where they now are making a home. Interesting. And uh, what I find very interesting, too, is you say a lot of the, um, the Libyan Jews who settled in Rome um, were from Tripoli. So, in fact, the cuisine is referred to as Cucina Ibraica Tripolina. Absolutely. Which is, yeah, that's the, the, the uh, Jewish um, cuisine of Tripoli. Interesting. Now, have you traveled in or earlier on? It's, it's, I mean, it's such an unsettled area at all times, but have you traveled in Libya at all? I have not traveled yeah. in Libya. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, a trip planned just before, just before. The, the war broke out was unfortunately canceled. Yeah. Um, now, I know you've been in a lot of other areas in the, in the Middle East and around that. Absolutely, so, yeah. Um, so, do you, so are, are you aware, do you know, does the cuisine, because I, I really don't know at all, that the cuisine of Tripoli vary very, from other parts of the country? Well, Tripoli, being a, a coastal town, has a much more fish-enriched mm -hmm. enriched diet. Um, now, the Libyan Jewish communities um, were focused in Benghazi and, uh, and in Tripoli. So there are similarities, there are differences. What we do find is that there's a, these, these overwhelming bonding flavors, lots of richly spiced things, and chili, not just spiced things, but spicy I, things. That surprised me, the hot chilies being used. I mean, that, a, it's a New World food. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously they, you know, they're right there in the midst of all that spice trade that went on for, mm -hmm. you know, for a long time when once they 
came back from uh, when they got to the from the New World. But the fact that they were incorporated and used, you don't you won't find that in a lot of the neighboring cuisines. But that's that was that interested me a lot. Was, no, it's so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also a lot of the the um, spices that are included. We use them a lot in many different cuisines, and and but the, you talk about the caraway, mm-hmm. and um, obviously the cumin. We, we'd expect that, mm-hmm. but some of the other flavors that we might not expect, um, the paprika. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. What uh, you tell me about some of the flavors that that you feel kind of differentiates it from other cuisines? Uh, well, I, I mean, I actually think that there are some really common similarities with other with other communities as well so um the definitely like the intense use of garlic the abundance of onion these are two things that set it far apart from the roman jewish tradition Mm -hmm. but make it similar to some features of of north african cuisine um each family has its own um deemed appropriate use of of spices so if you look at six different recipes for hairami some will include an abundance of caraway others will uh, will have a small amount and then compensate with other spices cumin in particular some use uh sweet paprika others focus more on cayenne so what what's really fantastic about going to libyan jewish homes and tasting hairami or other dishes um and the incarnation in which you find them there is that you're immediately connected to to that cook, to that cook's relatives, to their ancestors. Um, and in all cultures, there are passionate discussions about what the exact recipe right. for things are. <laughs> um, so again, if you look at six different recipes for something like bestile, um, which is essentially like mashed potatoes stuffed with spiced meat, um, you'll find some people use nutmeg, some people don't. And there are really, really lively discussions about um, whether you can introduce chicken meat or if it must only be veal. Um, it's a, it's, it's exciting. It's exciting because in, in a community that has, that is living in the diaspora, the food discussions about food, um, the repetition of recipes is a way to remember the past and to anchor one's culture um, in a new place. That's um, right. Without being able to return to the origins, uh, and that's exactly what I, what I want to mention: the fact that you know it harks back to many discussions that I've had with guests about authenticity. Well, when the original home no longer exists, who's to say what's authentic? Authentic and authentic is it, whoever is <laughs> is making it has made it that way for a long time, regardless of other people's Absolutely. original recipes. So, I love that that you know mama's chicken soup is still the best you always. Know? So, <laughs> always that way and um and i think that that's that's particularly interesting here where they're they're kind of trying to cling to uh to something that they that brings back memories that that is you know a reckoning of of their past lives and their and their culture and in their culture do you um now you say that there are about uh, four thousand Libyan Jews living living there. in Rome. Yeah, and uh, in uh, culturally, are they they're pretty much assimilated to uh, well, to that to that area? That's a great question. In Rome, um, things work a bit differently than in other cities. Um, if you are a member of the Jewish community, you belong to the community. Things work on a community basis. You can go to any synagogue you want. Generally, people do stick to the synagogues that practice their particular right. Um, and maybe a little 
explanation is necessary here because in Rome, there are a number of Jewish rights that are practiced. There's the Roman Jewish right, which dates back to the Roman Republic. There are several Sephardic rights that arrived in 1492 via Sicily um, and Spain, areas that were formerly under Spanish dominion. Um, and now you have the North African Libyan Jewish tradition. So while people do certainly identify with their local communities, um, they're part of the larger community. And because Rome has just 13,000 members um, of its community, people tend to stick together for um, those sort of larger decisions for the maintenance of the rabbinical school and the main synagogues and and the Jewish school, for example. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. And um, I and I just I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated that you're fascinated by by exploring this more because it's such a, you know, such a small um, slice of life for us to to explore. And I want to hear more about it. But first, we're going to take a short break. So stay with us. And we're come back with more Libyan Jewish cuisine. Hi, this is Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears here on Heritage Radio Network. This is my first season as a host, but at the Brooklyn Kitchen, we've been supporting Heritage Radio for many years, and I really believe in what Heritage does. It is a fantastic network that really highlights everything that is going on in food in America, from restaurant openings to farms uh, to my show, where I feature interesting people with interesting stories related to food. But Heritage is a not-for-profit. We don't make any money. Uh, most of the hosts do this because we love to do it, and we really do need your help as listeners. We'd love to have you listen, whether you can give any money or not. The website will still be up. You can still stream your favorite shows. But if you do like the programs here on Heritage Radio, we really would encourage you to go to the website, heritageradionetwork.org, click on the beating heart in the upper right-hand corner, and give whatever you can. If you drink coffee every afternoon while you listen to shows on Heritage, then maybe you can give us the cost of a cup of coffee once in a while. If you want to become a larger member, there's all kinds of great things you get if you become a member of the station and a larger supporter. So please join me, join the Brooklyn Kitchen, join our other great sponsors and become a member. Hi, we're back here on A Taste of the Past and I'm speaking with Katie Parla about Libyan Jewish cuisine in Rome. And you know, Katie, something that um, I read someone had, had mentioned, I guess it was one of the owners of Baghetto, actually, talking about how a lot of these uh, traditional dishes, the Libyan Jewish cuisine, uh, are involved stewing. And you mentioned a lot of the, the stewed meats and, and that they take, of course, and they're 
dishes that would certainly be served on Shabbat and on mm-hmm. Friday. They take a long time to cook, and so someone's got to be standing there watching the pot. But of course, a lot of that is disappearing in today's society with you know the busy families and both parents working. And of course, much like in in so many other uh, cultural traditions. Um, do you feel there's a, a fear of losing that? or? Yeah, and I think this has actually been documented in some sense by a, a fantastic scholar called Maurice Romani. Um, first-generation immigrants eat Libyan Jewish cuisine every single day, whereas that declines with each successive generation. Um, you know, in, in Rome, Jews, Christians, Catholics... Muslims were all bombarded by different choices. If you walk down the main street in the Jewish ghetto, um, there's a kosher burger place. There's a kosher sushi place. So it's only natural that people who are out and about out in the city, especially if they're at school or at work, they're not going home for lunch. So they might eat their traditional family dishes at the dinner table, but the, the other meals during the day are in fact those that are common to the rest of the city. Um, so I think that there is definitely a fear of losing those things. Um, a lot of things that used to be sort of hand-done or um, hand-processed are disappearing. Um, nobody makes, um, you know, tomato. nobody cans tomato sauce anymore. Very few people do. Now you just go out to the shop and buy it, and it's extremely cheap. Um, and so, you know, Roman, uh, Roman Jews, Libyan Jews are have access to the same sort of factory-made products that all Italians are, are, are uh, have access to via the supermarkets, which unfortunately dominate the, the consumer um, sector these days. So it's only through sort of consumption and celebration of these dishes that they can be preserved. Um, so with any hope, this really, really tiny and important minority cuisine um, will get the attention that it deserves. And then people will start asking for additional off-menu dishes at Baguette or Baguette Milky or any of the number of, of Libyan-owned Jewish places in, in uh, Rome's Jewish Quarter. Right. No, I think it's. I think you're absolutely right. And the, the more that they're aware of it, mm-hmm. then, as you say, the more that they will go seeking it. So hopefully we'll do a little service there and, <laughs> and make people curious. But it's interesting, if it weren't for holidays... Um, uh, weddings, you know, special occasions. So many of our, uh, you know, the, the cultural, the old school cultural dishes would be lost because that's that's the time when we sort of pull out all the stops and, and make those foods. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and because Rome's community, Jewish communities are observant, Shabbat is a really, really important time for people to come together, eat their typical dishes. Um, and uh, and so, fortunately, we still see that weekly manifestation. Absolutely. Um, now, you know, I want to talk a little bit about your your travel apps. Mm-hmm. Um, you... Now, is it all under one on the umbrella of because this is this is great because you can you know learn so much about about Katie um, Parla Food if you go to her blog and website Katie Parla, uh, but also your travel apps you really take people into the parts unknown. Yes, absolutely. Uh, tell us about your app, the, the name of it, and how people can get these apps. So there are two apps. One is called Katie Parla's Rome. The other is called Katie Parla's Istanbul. Naturally, I'm obsessed with New Rome and Old Rome, so <laughs> hence the uh, the dual city apps. They're both available on iTunes, um, and uh, you can even buy them as a bundle for a discounted price. Pretty exciting. <laughs> the uh, the apps were born because um, I feel like it's very difficult to truly eat well in Rome. Um, 
likewise in Istanbul. I mean, my first trip to both cities, I thought everything tasted delicious. But then the more that I sort of analyzed what ingredients were being used, the quality or lack thereof, the more I thought it was an essential service to provide insider information into like who really is doing delicious food, not just traditional, often traditional, but some creative things. Um, what are the wine bars that are working directly with like either small distributors or directly with vineyards? Like I want people not just to enjoy what they're eating, but I also want the, the people who are in spite of a variety of economic pressures continuing to work really, really hard to provide quality to stay in business. It's vitally important. And I've seen, you know, both cities as, uh, as commerce has changed, as food systems have have changed as the artisanal food systems have decayed for a number of reasons. I'm looking at you, European Union laws. Um, the uh, the the difficulty with which we can actually access really quality foods is um, is increasing. So the apps were born out of that uh, out of that dream. Oh, that's great! And this book that you um, that you've you finished. It's not out yet. We, we don't have March a chance March 29th to available for pre-order on various platforms. <laughs> <laughs> so March, we're talking about March. March 29th, Tasting Rome will be released, yeah. Tasting Rome. Um, and now you, you mentioned that you include a lot of the, um, the ancient tastes in this book. Yeah, I definitely reference ancient tastes. There's even uh, like an ancient farmer's marinated, um, like oven baked and marinated olives recipe. But I think a lot of the, a lot of the recipes are, are rooted in maybe ancient flavors, but that have relevance today. Mm-hmm. Um, and the subtitle of the book is you know, Fresh Flavors and Forgotten Recipes from an Ancient City. So I do really want to represent the 20th century, the 21st century in particular. Um, and, of course, the usual suspects are in there, the highly trafe carbonara, for example. Um, but there are also dishes like hirami with couscous um, or uh, spaghetti with botarga and chicory, which is uh, another feature of the... Uh, of the Jewish tradition now. Um, I wanted to represent like minority cuisines uh, without regard to critical mass. I wanted to represent movements that I think are important, that are a mirror of the changing culture. So there's a cocktail chapter. Um, and so those are, I think, together, the, the, the book's features as a whole sort of showcase what's happening in Rome now um, and doesn't just focus on antiquity, but instead sort of a full survey of, of the city's food mm-hmm. history. As you say, the fresh the fresh tastes of yes. antiquity, right, <laughs> and how they play. That's great because I I, I think that so many um, of us tra- when we travel, we do get trapped in in we try to say, oh, I don't want to go to that place; it's too touristy, and yet we end up at places that aren't really representative of of what's going on in the food world. And this is such a great service um, between the apps and now this book, you know, Tasting Rome, is great because you really take us behind the scenes of of what's going on or, or into the scene of yeah. what's going on. I mean, I think it's time. Rome is a city that a lot of people dream of visiting or um, have visited many times. Rome deserves more than just a superficial um, approach. And we have now, with various technological advancements, the ability to really delve into a culture in a way that we never have before, um, not just through literature, but also through uh, through food. And um, it's pretty easy to navigate with, you know, Google Maps and uh, and to get out to neighborhoods like Centocelle or uh, Piazza Bologna or any number of, of districts. Rome is not London area-wise. It's not huge um, in that sense. Um, and so each neighborhood 
can showcase a, a variety of different characteristics, which a visitor with a, with a little bit of interest can can really tap into pretty easily now. Okay, I'm hungry. <laughs> I'm always hungry. It's <laughs> Definitely not a problem, right? Yeah. Well, it's great, and I and I I think that it's it, you are you know provide a terrific service and i can't wait to can't wait to to look at it and go back to rome when you come back to rome yeah. we'll, we'll go eat some delicious hairami with couscous there we'll you go it. there you go okay so i encourage you to explore more than what meets the eye and try to get behind the scenes the next time you're traveling and particularly in rome and learning about libyan jewish cuisine has been a, a real education for me it's been terrific thank you so much katie Parler. thanks for having me and thanks for listening you've been listening to a taste of the past i'm your host linda palaccio Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.